Hello and welcome to Criticism Instead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Helen Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Tijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing the French Dispatch and Selling Sunset, two interpretations of hyper-specific reality. Yeah, very good, very good. That, that's thanks to you and your <laughs> sleepless nights, so thank you. Uh. Uh, how are you doing, Pollen? I'm switching it up and uh, asking you first for a change. I feel honored. What do I, know, I do with this? I know, just to uh, catch you off guard. Um, I'm doing all right. We had our Thanksgiving break and it was certainly too short. But yeah. Wait, I... tell, me, uh, tell me what you ate specifically, right, if there were r- things that you ate. Right, right, right. So last night I went out with some friends. The three of us went out and one of us hadn't seen Dune yet. So I, yeah, so we went to go see it at at like one of the Times Square restaurants. Uh, Restaurants? Fucking hell. (laughs) Cinema theatres. It wasn't, it's not doing IMAX, it's coming back on IMAX. So we did like the Regal Theatre or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we had these like really fancy, you know, those uh, seats that slide all the way back. It's really nice. Um, But then we wanted to try like a a kind of fancy, fancy uh, pasta restaurant that has been out. It's a place called Forsythia. And yeah, it was good. It was good, but I don't know. I always get sticker shock with pasta. Yeah. Um, and it's not that, you know, like no discrimination to my Italian ex community. <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> I think in my brain, it computes as starch because I grew up on rice and rice is starch and rice is cheap and meat is expensive because I'm Middle yeah. Eastern and that's just how we compute the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, you know, when you price a bowl of pasta between like 27 and 29 dollars yeah i mean it was good though i feel i feel i feel similarly about pasta by the way but yeah yeah but it's fine we're we're out here we're trying things we're trying to you know savor the joys of life and not think about saving money too much uh, thanksgiving break not not bad not bad how about you how was yours well food wise just cooked some stuff at home you we used to have like a I guess a longer standing family tradition of going to Boston market and just like buying carry out every year. But, mm-hmm. uh, Boston markets are like closing down, like no one's business. And uh, the ones that are left are super swarmed on Thanksgiving now to the point where I hear it's an absolute shit show. So that is no longer part of the annual, uh, tradition. So this year yeah. I made a Spanish tortilla, which, I've been making more and more lately, but I completely fucked it up this time and trying to flip it over, but that's okay. Still tasted fine. Yeah. Um, Had some uh, roasted asparagus with that. Some Kroger cornbread. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what that means, but I love cornbread. Yeah, cornbread from the the, uh, big grocery chain Kroger, which is pretty good. good, And Trader Joe's frozen mac and cheese uh, balls, which are very good. They are? Yeah, they're really good. (laughs) God, I need to check that out. So wait, can we just back up a bit? So what is Boston Market exactly? Is it like a Costco type? Oh, shit. Sorry, I should have given this context. uh, Knowing my, uh, my British audience here yeah so boston market is kind of a a chain of i don't know i guess you would call it like fast casual or something it's been around for a long time Mm. basically it serves all the food that you would typically associate with like uh thanksgiving or christmas or like a kind of american holiday sort of thing so got it roast chicken i think Mm. they do ham now 
um, mashed potatoes. Oh, godly, like, god-tier mashed potatoes. Those are the only thing I want to get there, honestly. Um, Nice. And then, like, corn, sweet potatoes, cornbread, mac and cheese. You know, all those kind of, like, heavier American holiday foods. So there used to be, I think, a lot more than them. But sometime in the past few years... I think they've been struggling a lot and adapting to modern contemporary days. So like younger, are they doing like fusion stuff? I don't know what what they're doing even, but they're they're like shutting down their a lot of their locations basically, including the one that's been closest to um, us here in Michigan. So you know that is Boston Market in a nutshell. Yeah, rest in peace, Boston Market. The incoming imminent death. Yes. In the meantime, what did you watch this week? So I watched The French Dispatch. Uh, that was another sort of post-Thanksgiving treat, I guess. Um, so obviously The French Dispatch, probably everyone knows, this is Wes Anderson's latest film. It was released theatrically about a month ago uh, mm-hmm. and still playing. And it is billed as a love letter to journalists, quote unquote. Um, so this is an anthology film. It consists of... Basically, like, a brief sort of travel vignette, three longer feature stories, and an overarching framing incident of the death of the editor-in-chief of the French Dispatch, a mm-hmm. uh, fictional, by the way, New Yorker-like uh, literary magazine in the fictional, again, French town of ennui sur vase So... <laughs> Uh, basically, the this editor-in-chief, Arthur Howard Jr., played by Bill Murray, he dies in 1975. The magazine is shut down for his will. And there is one final farewell issue um, consisting of these, you know, three greatest hit stories as well uh, as that travelogue and an obituary for Howitzer. So these stories basically play out like the layout of the magazine. Um, so they just like come in succession in the order that they would have appeared in the magazine. And as is customary for a lot of uh, Wes Anderson films, it's a huge star ensemble cast. Many classic uh, Wes Anderson favorites, as well as other big names. Yeah, when did you get to check this out, Pellen? I think around the week, like the the week that it came out, we Mm -hmm. went to go see it at the Nighthawk. Yeah. Uh, Near Prospect Park. And are you a big Wes Anderson head? Not really. Not that I'm not a fan. It's just he does he's not like he doesn't speak to the core of my being. You know what I mean? But I always have fun with his films. It's never like I come away with it feeling like I fucking hated that. (laughs) Yeah. I also I also have not seen everything that he's done. I haven't either. Yeah, yeah. So like I haven't really seen um, like I haven't seen Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I know that that's a favorite of a lot Me of people. Me neither. I also haven't seen the uh, Isle of the Dogs, the other like animated well, I, yeah. one. Same. Uh, um, yeah, I've seen more the human story, so like Tenenbaums. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know Grand P- Budapest Hotel and and Moonrise Kingdom. Uh, did I see Moon? I have not. I've also not seen Moonrise Kingdom. Mm, okay. But so yeah, you have at least like a. A decent idea of like his work, yeah. like his thing. <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to. You see one, and you're like, "Oh, this guy has like a he has like a thing." Yeah, yeah. So, that's pretty much uh, that's his deal. Uh, that's yeah. a similar like level of, I guess, like commitment or, or fandom that that I have. Like, I like his stuff generally. I think I'm I'm into what he does uh, visually and just his particular way of thinking and way of seeing things yeah uh, but i'm not a yeah. diehard uh wes anderson stan as i know yeah that some people are but um for this film it's yeah it's his first one i think since um was it 2018 maybe the isle of the dogs and 
I feel like it's gotten a bit of a turn in the press and discourse cycle. So I was looking forward to it for that reason, partly because I think that critical reception has been a bit mixed. Uh, several reviews and critics have, have taken to describing this as like peak Wes Anderson or the most Wes Anderson movie Wes Anderson has ever made. And that's like right. from a quote from uh, Vulture. Mm-hmm. Um, but whether or not that is like a pro or a con is pretty much entirely up to the critic writing that review as well as the viewer. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, anything that you could say about Wes Anderson, whether it's like you could critique the nostalgia or the prestige, the fussiness of his films, um, but it could very easily be a pro to someone else. Like that's a, a draw for his work. Yeah. So yeah, that makes him uh, really interesting. I think as a filmmaker, at least like whether you love him or hate him, at least he is, I don't know, doing something. <laughs> he's, he has his own bag and he's in it every time. Yeah. And like, that's fine. Well, I think it's fi- not only is that fine, that's actually admirable. I don't know. Yeah. I it's something. I think I briefly mentioned it when I talked about watching it first time around. That it is. It is very him. Yeah. But you simply have to respect it because nobody's doing it like him. So, right. Right. Yeah. So I don't know. I just kind of feel like having a, a very specific style as a director is. I, I don't know. It, it's kind of like. It's admirable. Like, David Lynch has his own style. Everybody knows a fucking David Lynch movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, David Fincher has his own style, and that's also admirable. And the difference between those direct... Well, I guess maybe not Lynch, but I guess say the difference between, like, a Fincher and a Wes Anderson is that I think there's, there's like, a moodiness that people are okay with. And I think the hyper-colorful, almost optimistic you know, joy de vivre of like a Wes Anderson movie can feel a little bit like awkward, I guess. And and I feel like people don't know what to do with that feeling of yeah. awkwardness. Yeah, like I remember um I will cite my own workplaces. Uh some someone wrote uh, a critique for, for Gawkers saying that uh, negative critique. Um mm. saying that Wes Anderson is like, you know, lost the the plot he is like stuck in quote-unquote precocious child mode mm-hmm. um and like not just like this piece but others i've seen like arguing whether his shtick is basically old and stale now whether he needs to grow or develop or change in some way i guess I, i'll say i like can understand some of what maybe these negative critics are mm-hmm. talking about but overall i think yeah we're still better for having Wes anderson and his like unique vision and i i yeah i think if someone has a thing that they love and are good at doing like i don't know there's like this line between just repeating the same thing over and over or Mm -hmm. or like just knowing that what you is in like your realm and your wheelhouse and loving whatever it is staying with that just to kind of go off on that point I think every director, to some extent, makes the same film over and over again. Yeah, they're drawn to the same. Like Themes, it's a thing that motivates yeah. them to to tell their stories and to like get this uh, creative vision out into the exactly. world. Exactly. So I find that like this 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 uh, <laughs> urging Wes Anderson to kind of grow up is ridiculous because I feel like what you're basically saying is that you've become now jaded by as a viewer by this format you've grown up you're over it it's not that he needs to get over it he can do whatever right, he wants right right um, yeah so. I, I remember there was some <laughs> I, I think like a big tweet um by some 
big writer or something at the, at the time that the French Dispatch came out. And it was something like, you know, can you imagine having a Wes Anderson film like this come out at a time like this in 2021? Oh, fuck And <laughs> I mean, a lot of the reaction to that was like pretty much that. It was like, what the fuck are you talking about? When is like a good time for, for anything, like good or bad time for like any kind of art? So <laughs> that's all sort of the backdrop of the French Dispatch coming out and the way I think some people uh, have been tuning into it. Mm. But I'll say like for this movie in itself, like the the content of this movie, the, the specific film aside from the discourse, I found it like like many of his films, it was a bit long, it could have been a bit shorter. It was a bit like overly indulgent at times. It was a little uneven because of just like the different storylines. But nonetheless, I I still liked it. And I'm glad that I saw it. Yeah, it I agree. Like I had a really fun time. Yeah. Which was your favorite uh story of these uh, uh selection of, of smaller stories? The first and the last one. I think the first one was the artist, right? Yeah, the artist who's uh, yeah. incarcerated. Yeah, and then the last one was the chef one. Yes. The uh, yeah, so those private two dining were... room of the police commissioner. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, th- those two were my favorites. How about you? I uh... I think the yeah the last one the the police chef um mm. was my favorite by by a lot. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah. Mm. So that one is Jeffrey Wright as a uh, plain journalist Robeck Wright. And a lot of these characters are sort of amalgamations or inspired by actual uh New Yorker writers from like mm. uh the the past that Wes Henderson is like really drawn to. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that last story was just I like the protagonists like the the journalists and the the way that they frame the story like he goes on a talk show to talk about this story that he wrote a while Mm -hmm. ago and then also it's a story of him and how he ended up in the magazine and like uh how his personal life actually plays into the story like it i think to me it like accomplished this thing of great voicey magazine features the best which is like it's a portrait of the profile subject which in this case is the uh chef for the police commissioner but it's also a portrait of the writer and that is i mean i don't know i'm just a sucker for those kind of like traditional like when you get a really fantastic uh magazine feature writer doing something like that any essay or profile or piece of work is is really a reflection of yourself. So I like that. Yeah, there's just a lot to love about it, in addition to it being kind of the most uh, traditionally, like, action-packed sort of narrative. Yeah. So what was your least favorite out of out of them all? Mm. I think the, the second story was definitely kind of the, the thinnest, the one with uh, Timmy, our dear boy Timmy, playing yeah. the uh, youth activist, and <laughs> Francis Dick McDormand playing his the much older journalist who is unethically having a dalliance with him. Yeah. Um, I don't know. There was an energy to it that I appreciated, but also it's, yeah, I don't, like I said, kind of a thinness to the story and to the, the portrayal of like the, this like youth activism movement um, boiling mm-hmm. down to sort of like childish endeavors, which maybe it was in a lot of ways, but yeah. it felt a little smaller than I think uh, mm-hmm. it could have been. Yeah, I agree. I, I liked it though still like I, I think some people were like I hated that one it was so annoying and I, <laughs> I didn't I don't have that strong of a feeling me neither I, I thought so. they're all like at least fine you yeah. know yeah. um so and I, like the first story 
is one of those where I felt was like a little bit long, but at the same mm. time, I thought it was quite, if not profound, at least like fascinating and like how it yeah. peered into the, this life of this tortured, very mentally unwell artist and his yeah. muse. That's very complicated relationship. Yeah, and like the ownership of art. Yes, and and yeah. how it is sold. Yeah, and everybody's in their bag uh, for oh, it. Yeah, we we have King Adrian Brody in this as well, and he's great. <laughs> Yeah, it, it. I don't know. I had a fun time. It was like a really good way of just like diving headfirst into this format. What yeah. did you think of that framing device of the magazine? The magazine. I actually really liked it, uh, but yeah, it was sick. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, and maybe this is because we are like the type of people who are. This is the the prime audience, or like uh, yeah, dude, love we, magazines. Like yeah, love. like I collect <laughs> copies of the New Yorker, and yeah. I like archive my favorite covers. You know what I mean? Like I'm such a smarmy dickhead for that but yeah Yeah. can't help it mate i know i think there was some criticism where some people were like there's no through line like uh but i think the magazine through line is like enough for this what do you mean this okay i'm so mad the through line is that the editor has died what are you talking about and it's like a you know it's an ode to this editor it's an ode to the magazine it's an ode to like like wes anderson has this very clear and obvious love for the new yorker and the kind of literary era and journalism that it represented like yeah the the kind of time which now seems like a total fantasy like a thing of the golden past is just like when editors had this power they mm-hmm. use this power to be like fiercely protective of their writers and the writers they earn both like acclaim as well as uh very good money from their craft like they can make a living off of writing you know like one or two features a year or like there's yeah. that one um very small like writer character in- mentioned in the story who was like and the narrator was like okay this guy has not published anything at all but he's still yeah. employed and he hang- hang- hangs around the office and just yeah. like that is kind of it's what you imagine when you think of the good old days of magazines which are are long gone and how the writer would just get this room to craft these portraits of the subjects and themselves and like the human condition at large that's just mm-hmm. like it's a totally, like, utterly romantic idea of the past, but I'm a fucking sucker for it, and yeah. clearly Wes Anderson is too, obviously. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In terms of the visual style of it, mm-hmm. I think the only thing, and this is just a critique of almost every <laughs> every single Wes Anderson movie <laughs> okay. that I've seen, the pacing is very Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. That's my only critique, is that it just goes a hair too fast for me. And I wish he would just kind of slow it down so I can really take in the room and the set design and whatever oh. it is that he's built. That's my yeah. only critique. And I, because this was so, so chock full, because, you know, because of the framing device, we are able to go in and out of different worlds through different writers. Yeah. Um, not worlds, but, you know, characters. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, I just really, it was super indulgent. So I just wanted it to slow down a little bit. Um, yeah. So I could just, I don't know. Yeah. Take it in a little bit more. But. This is Wes, and the pacing is is his whole fucking shtick as well. So <laughs> yeah, just yeah. this kind of like rapid fire. Like, there's so much going on visually, but I can I think thinking specifically of um like the split screens when in the last story when they show the food as well as like yeah. who's eating it and yeah. things just go by in like two seconds and you're you're not even done looking at from one at one side of the screen and then the other disappear. It's just like. 
like these are the kind of films that he would probably also just be like just go watch it over and over again like go back and yeah, watch it yeah a dozen times and you'll be able to see new stuff all the time yeah um which is probably true but it does like create a little bit of a i would have liked to, <laughs> to have been able to appreciate some some more of these uh visuals and, and like direction yeah, dude. for what they were i mean he's uh, the king of the mise-en-scene you know what i mean yeah, like he, yeah. th- there's a reason why we were screen shotting his films and putting them on tumblr right? oh, and just so long yeah so it's he's just gonna continue doing that he he's yeah. known for being a hard ass of, of a director like on set and then also mm-hmm. in post with his editing like he needs things to be just so and you yeah. see it you see you see it on screen so you yeah. simply have to respect it man <laughs> like I don't right know. it's a, it's a yeah. kind of discipline like in and of itself yeah yeah i don't know this is a it's not my favorite of his films, but mm. I think it's it's an enjoyable film all the same. And yeah. especially if you're into this subject matter and like the New yeah. Yorker, you're a New Yorker head. You're going to fucking yeah, love exactly. this. What is, your, what is your favorite Wes Anderson movie? <laughs> I, uh, mm, I feel like I actually really liked uh, Grand Budapest Hotel. Mm. But mm-hmm. it's kind of hard to choose like one exactly i don't know what about you um royal tenenbaums i was gonna guess that for you (laughs) and i i really like darjeeling limited you know there's there's some problematic elements to that but in terms of his most human story Mm -hmm. the the one that's more most closely resembles the films of other directors i guess Mm -hmm. that's that's the most uh that's the closest we're gonna get Um, yeah i mean there is this like critique but also acknowledge like it does seem to be like hold true in some way but whether you see it as good or bad is like his earlier films um are more humanistic in a way like he Mm -hmm. his his shicks and his like uh tendencies become more and more pronounced i think with each subsequent film yeah which you know it could be a drawback if you if you like that sort of human element yeah um i'll say i like it best when he marries his his sort of like uh, obsessive compulsive <laughs> yeah. like tricks and, and tendencies I, I like it best when he marries that with the human element so that's why yeah. in part yeah. i liked that um the private dining of the police commissioner story yeah the best because it it has a stronger human element and i think it's a there there it will evoke like some cor- kind of emotion um mm-hmm. so he's an interesting director and i think yeah he will continue to produce interesting work that can be appreciated for what it is uh for a long time now helen what did you watch this week um i've watched so much this week but the <laughs> <laughs> very overwhelmed and i just decided to go for something that we all know and love it's just in the background comforting us you know so this week i watched selling sunset the latest season dropped i think on thursday on netflix season four so yes um a little bit of podcast lore we actually did season three right um when we were doing our practice episode season two or three yeah oh jesus either way it it might have been two but yeah, Either way, that was we, one of our uh, pilot episodes that is yeah. gone unreleased. So we, me and Jenny have gone down this road before, but you guys haven't heard us talk about it. So um, <laughs> here we are, season four, Selling Sunset. If you have, uh, I don't know, once again, living under a rock, do not know what we're talking about. 
Selling Sunset is created by Adam DeVello, who also created Laguna Beach and the Hills. And this is his latest multicam reality TV show on Netflix, which focuses on women that work at the Oppenheim Group in West Hollywood. The Oppenheim Group is a realty agency that sells very, very expensive properties to very rich LA people. So how do you feel about that? Have you seen all of this latest season? Yeah, which is kind of kind of wild because it's been more or less like th- three or four days since it's yeah, been yeah. released. Just like chugged through that. Yeah, and it's, to be fair, the episodes are 30 to 36 minutes long, so it's easy to kind of get through them. Yeah, I, I have feel not- like my brain is a little bit uh, worse off for... Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. So I, I haven't seen the last two episodes, but I kind of know what happens. Oh, uh-huh. It's well, yeah, whatever. you can more or less uh, guess what's happening. Yeah, just... it doesn't take a genius to know what the trajectory is. So yeah. we're going, this is going to be a, a, a conversation full of spoilers. So if you have not seen the previous seasons of S- Selling Sunset, feel free to go watch them if you want and circle back. If not, we'll see you next week. <laughs> so <laughs> um, <laughs> so this um, this season starts off kind of picking up almost well some time has passed since the end of the last season so christine quinn who is i guess ostensibly our villain now has got married she got married at the end of last season uh chrishell uh stormed out of her wedding after her sudden divorce from a this is us actor and then between the end of that season and the start of this one a whole many months of drama have gone by off screen which is classic now. I feel like that just needs to happen for yeah. multi for multicam reality TV Although shows. It's, that it's kind of hard to keep up because I yeah. I guess yeah. a lot of beef went out on all over social media and in tabloids. Which yeah, most of that has completely escaped me because I well yeah because do we don't follow these people on Instagram. It. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> that we we cap it. We only watch them on TV. All right. Mm-hmm. Um, so. A whole bunch of dramas happened. In the meantime, Christine got pregnant and the season starts off with her pregnant, uh, like nine months pregnant. And she has a floating position at the realty agency and the girls are just trying to function with all the shit that she's had to do over that. She did to them over the break. So everybody hates Christine. That's the whole, that's this entire season. I feel like is that's what it should be called. Yes. Um, so how did how did you feel about this season overall? What was your main takeaway from it? My main takeaway is how much the show depends on Christine as like a vehicle. Mm-hmm. And also I miss seeing all of the gorgeous and tacky and extremely opulent homes because it feels yeah. like there were not that many this season compared to in the early days when they really had to lean on this uh, kind of device to differentiate yes. the show. Yeah, because this is basically a workplace drama. That's what mm-hmm. it was sold to us as. Mm-hmm. You know, Develo, he, as a creator, he knows how to sell us a whole bunch of like white blonde women hating each other as <laughs> a dramatic device. Like We are game for that. We get invested in it. Sure. But the difference between, you know, the OC, uh, not fucking hell, the OC, the Hills, Laguna Beach, is that these are actually people with jobs and lives to manage, as as opposed to a bunch of teens that have nothing to do all day. Mm. So 
Yeah, it, it it was very strong because it started off with yeah a whole bunch of viewings, a whole bunch of understanding what the industry a real estate agency looks like. Mm-hmm. There was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of explaining, you know, the technical back and forth of what what goes on in an exchange. But I agree, there really wasn't enough real estate, and was and not only was there not enough real estate. They all sucked. Like, I find myself in every season liking just one property. <laughs> and it's always a Spanish style. Like, oh, old, yes. You know? Um, yeah. But no, in this one, like, there was basically nothing. I think, you know the They're house like, that Chriselle almost bought but didn't? Oh, that one was nice. That one was nice. Yeah. And I think but yeah, there was another- I, <laughs> There's so much of, like, this kind of sterile... Yeah. Uh, like hotel-like glass oh, walls. Uh, yeah, that's the predominant sort of aesthetic of a yeah. lot of these ten, twenty million dollar homes or whatever. And yeah, the way not- that they <laughs> the, the, the way that they refer to those types of properties is it's always sexy, um, <laughs> and I could not agree less. Like, yeah, it's just yeah, no, there, there's just something so cheap about everything lifeless yeah yeah Yeah, so i agree i that i think that i really wanted more of that i i found i got more out of like chrishell's house transaction more than Mm -hmm. anything but then the entirety of uh the back and forth with christine between every single almost every single character just like everything everything involved christine and clearly you know maybe she's not pleasant as a person i don't really know i don't really care but yeah, the show cannot live without her at this in its current iteration. No, so I think at one point Christine had tweeted something about carrying the whole show on her back, and this was an, a perfect example oh, of, of absolutely. that. And I don't know whether it's because, like, during the pandemic, you know, despite all the drama and the he said she said um, off screen that happened, I think there really wasn't enough for the producers to go off of so christine had to be yeah she had to be like the spine of it essentially which she was which she was yeah i saw i think rochelle either like tweeted or or commented or or, like replied to someone because like fans are basically asking like why does every single conversation on the show revolve around christine like don't Mm y'all have anything better to talk about yeah and she was like we did talk about other stuff like we we weren't just talking about christine but like just in the edit yeah. yeah, and the edit it was it became only about Christine to the point where mm-hmm. it really seemed like the everyone was obsessed with with her and her their conflict with her. But yeah, yeah, I guess it just emerged as the most interesting or, or juiciest part. But I don't know. I think there is that. Yeah, you get the sense that there's not much happening, and even with the Christine conflict, so much of it is just like artificial, like clearly just like blown yeah. up for the show to the point where even that seemed like okay like very boring like what's next like please this is this is so fake you can't just like keep rearranging the woman in the office so that christine you know she has to have like a couple of obligatory like girls on her side and then everyone else can go join the other side like it's yeah (laughs) we don't expect reality but yeah Yeah. it's just like it's not interesting anymore yeah like i i under yeah like we understand it's a reality tv show and the whole premise is like a he said she said conflict but like you really need to sell it and I just felt like it it wasn't enough to the point yeah. where like yeah Christine seems insane for lying yeah but the, even the lies felt for the sake of just just making making you know it's it's like making people feel gaslit the whole time <laughs> so yeah 
it yeah it just wasn't doing it like because you were just like thinking like what's in it for christine again every villain and every hero needs like they need a reason for why they are the way that they are and i just kind of wasn't getting it from christine other than the fact that she just wanted to be a bitch and that uh, that part i was like no no that i don't i don't think i believe that Despite that, I, I still was entertained because there was, yeah. like, in the ridiculousness, like, you just feel, you know, like, for me, this this maybe sounds super patronizing, but part of the entertainment for shows like this is that I feel better as a human being uh, for being smarter <laughs> than these people and for not uh, spending my time worrying about any of this shit. Um, <laughs> I know that this is a production. I know that it's just trying to make me not think about <laughs> i don't know the pandemic uh not think about any of this other shit which it, it that's why it got popular so yeah it was like the ultimate escapist sort yeah of dude what did you think of the uh two new additions to the cast this this year so interesting so i think vanessa <laughs> <laughs> vanessa is um so vanessa is a malibu based real estate agent she gets brought on as davina's replacement she comes on she's pretty new to the real estate game much like chriselle was she's also an ex soap soap actress and then we have emma who is apparently like she's the ex-fiance of christine's ex-boyfriend right am i right yeah, yeah. and i believe she has been like working kind of in the Oppenheim group like she's she knows the people she knows the office she's yeah. been like dealing with Oppenheim group for a while but she I believe this is like her full-time uh joining yeah she dabbles and now she's like full-time dabbling yeah and she has an empanada group <laughs> oh empanada business that she shoehorns in every single fucking conversation it drove me insane every yeah, time she, like that she is came, her, her reason for her for appearing on the show yeah yeah definitely definitely and like her just being like it plays for my private jets and then i invested in things when i was 14 and i paid for my fat what the fuck are you talking about me anyway it just cracked me up um so these two i think i think vanessa was brought on to be like the messenger that just kind of yeah. flits back and forth between the different groups. And like, Christine, she said this. And Christine needs someone now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she does. She does. And she needed like somebody to convince. So she played her role well. I don't think she's naive at all. I think she's just kind of playing the role that the producers have told her she needs to play. But yeah. I don't think she's an idiot. I think she's actually pretty smart. Yeah. And then Emma and... <laughs> I don't really care for necessarily, but I do see her as being like a worthy opponent to Christine. So, she kind of adds like a traditional like girl boss uh, yeah, yeah, element yeah, to yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But she needs to lay off of, she needs to like decide what it is that she wants out of this show. Like, does she want... Besides product placement. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, come on, you can't go to someone's housewarming party and bring your fucking empanadas <laughs> as a housewarming gift, like... Get a grip. Uh, no one's eating that shit. Anyway. Incredible. Yeah. So, Chriselle is the hero arc. It's going yeah. well for her. She just yeah. bought her new house. I think that was probably my favorite part in terms of most mm -hmm. like heartwarming and, and everything. But I wanted to talk to you about her specifically and in terms of like this concept of like relatability that the producers have, have tried to kind of slot in with almost every character this season because... You know, that it's, maybe they were asking the question of like, how do we make this feel a little less, uh, what's the word, out, like in touch 
as opposed to the out of touchness that these mm. women seem to be in. Because, you know, they go to restaurants and um this season and servers are all wearing masks and, yeah, and nothing yeah, has really was... changed. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I, I think they they were trying to think of like how do we make these women feel a little bit more human <laughs> and a little bit less like ridiculous. And mm-hmm. I think Chriselle always had a, a a sense of relatability to her as a person. I yeah. think that's where people like her. Mm-hmm. Um but you know, this season she's kind of picked herself back up from her divorce, and she uh, she <laughs> she starts off with being like, you know, with everything that's happened this year with my divorce and losing both my oh parents, my God. you know, the super lows and then the highs, and she the highs were apparently dancing with the stars. So I was like, great. yes, um, <laughs> incredible, just like impeccable quote of hers, just a perfect. I'm trying to get on her level in terms of positivity. You know what I mean? In terms of the other women. Christine, she gave birth and it was a pretty traumatic birth. And the scenes where she's talking about it are, you know, I felt really bad for her. And Mm -hmm. despite that, obviously, she looked insanely good (laughs) during and after pregnancy. Like, just, I think it was to the point where someone was like, someone on Twitter was like, did she, was she even actually pregnant? Like, yeah, I've seen the, uh, conspiracy theory <laughs> yeah um, because i mean yeah i i'm part of it is like she's a chronic liar so we yeah. get that but at the same time i don't i don't think so i think she's just one of those like extremely lucky women yeah so there's that but then there's also the relatability of amanda and her ex yeah. who is the father of her children who basically uh leaves her to be a single mother that felt yeah, weird I've- I I thought she was did it feel weird to you I thought it was relatable I thought it kind of like showed a side of motherhood and womanhood that you know these women the other women couldn't possibly really understand but it also felt super dark and that felt really awkward to me yeah in in terms of like the context of the show yeah I agree that tonally it sort of stands out because you get the feeling that Amanda is kind of the one with like the real problems yeah like, her yeah. life is probably if you like break it down the one that's most immediately accessible and relatable to the average person watching this but i agree like tonally it is it's a little bit of a departure from the rest of the show where even the yeah. rest of the problems that people have like they are they can still be sort of painted over in this really sunny and glossy way that is yeah. in in yeah in step with the uh sheen of the show but hers is a little bit harder to gloss over yeah so for the next season they have started to set up the thing that (laughs) we know has happened from off-season uh pictures and instagram photos so chrishell and jason are now dating in real life (laughs) and they have started to set that up in the season with jason uh you know looking fawningly over at uh, chrishell and they've the editors are really just like yeah they know what they're doing man but I wanted to talk to you about the winners and the losers this season, just as a final point. Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think? Who are your winners and who are your losers of this season? Chriselle is a winner. Obviously, mm-hmm. she's really on on top of everything. Yeah, I'm gonna say I kind of feel like uh, Mary is is a winner. Like she's mm. like she has finally like gotten enough, taken enough shit from whoever she's taking shit from, and she's. I feel like she's kind of grown yeah more of the backbone she's still messy especially when she drinks but i i i always have felt that like mary is like one of the more genuine people on the show uh whatever genuine means in this context (laughs) yeah um but i think she's in a good place um Mm -hmm. what about you 
Um, winners are definitely Chriselle for sure, and also Maya because I feel like she just. Uh, oh, she's always like she's always winning, baby. She's uh, doing whatever she does. She's doing yeah. whatever she does. She's just getting pregnant, minding her business. You know. <laughs> um. So shout out to her. I would say the losers of the season are Emma. She's a, mm. just she's a loser, and also Simu Lu. What the fuck are you doing <laughs> on this show? Well, what? Uh, yeah that's that was really um i don't want to say embarrassing but it's Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit like uh, yeah um, it was super embarrassing he is thirsty as a star he is thirsty thirsty for i don't know he there's just a specific kind of like striving way of his now that he's like on his way up and he's just like hustling to appear everywhere and to be the everyman for everyone exactly i will say he did look good yeah he looked good he looked he did look good like the the rough look with the black silk shirt like good for him man yeah. Happy he can uh, get his Dress. first first Hollywood property too. Like good good for you, man. Yeah, man. Uh, this week in culture, we are gonna talk briefly about the Great British Bake Off post finale thoughts. Um, yeah. So please do not listen to this if you haven't watched the finale yet. If you don't want to get spoiled, um, mm-hmm. we will be talking freely about who won, etc. Yeah, and I just want to say fuck you to the person that spoiled it for me three days before I watched it. So wait, no way! What, yeah, what man. happened? Just someone, someone. It wasn't even specific. Someone just tweeted that like, oh, Italians are on the rise, House of Gucci, and then they win. The oh. and I was like, oh, fuck off, man! Wow, that's hard. Oh. You can't even really screen for that. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, it was still entertaining of a finale. So yeah 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 so i want to know like who who was your favorite like who did you want to win out of the three of them yeah giuseppe okay me too me yeah. too hands down hands, italian, hands down italian king yeah um, i mean i like chicks but i just think giuseppe deserves it more yeah <laughs> That's like just he, where I'm at. throughout the whole competition he and jurgen were in a league of their own and you know chicks and christelle they they improved each week they like were catching up they like really I mean, honestly, the thing that's kind of extraordinary about, th- about this season is I I fucking love the finalists and basically yeah. most of the contestants. Uh, it's been a really stellar casting season. Mm-hmm. I agree. Uh, basically, everybody had a personality of their own. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it wasn't just like a difference in accents. Like everyone had a stylistic <laughs> difference of baking, too, which I really enjoyed as well. I just, I just, all the way until the very end, I just wish christelle just calmed down with the facial expressions like she's so od with whatever's oh. going on her face it's such a british uh, mannerism but she really? just kind of amped it to a 10 yeah just like <laughs> oh god oh, oh god oh no oh god it's so wow, british right it's oh. so british but it's just like f- fucking calm down babes oh my god i'll um, say out of everyone her flavors i probably would have wanted to eat like a lot of her flavor combinations the most yeah man she loves uh, herself she loves um she loves some yuzu she, she loves, loves some yuzu. chai some yeah. cardamom she some loves miso. miso yeah all it, of these things all of the um, things yep <laughs> But yeah, I I don't know. I, it was just a really, it was it was a really nice uh, mm. set of people. And yeah. Giuseppe, what a king! I don't know. Then they they king. really tried to they really tried to make it make it out that he would not win this because they showed very in great excruciating detail all of the mistakes that he made leading yeah. up to his his big uh, showstopper win. But yeah. 
He pulled it off. He pulled it out of the bag. He pulled it off. That that the part where he called his family, like his dad was telling him. Oh. I wept like a baby. <laughs> oh, oh, he's so sweet, man. I'm so happy for him. He's now in Milan working on a cookbook, which I will be buying. Um, mm, because yeah, I know, I know dad. that I, I really like Christelle's flavors too. But I'm when it comes to baking, I'm a bit of a traditionalist. Like I love mm-hmm. myself like some traditional Italian French baking oh he is so, yeah that is his that yeah, is his stuff yeah so he loves himself some like uh, almonds and hazelnuts and that's extremely yes. my shit so yeah. um did you have a favorite outside of the top three that you wish i don't know maybe could have gotten in or you just had a Jürgen. personal favorite Jürgen, of course yeah are you dumb Jürgen. I, I, I was beautiful jolly man i love him and his eyebrows i love his love for his wife he's such a wife guy i love him um yeah yeah i i just i was furious when he got taken out to be honest yeah. so yeah if any like if there was any single season where they they should have bent the rules and allowed four into the final final mm-hmm. it like it should have been this one yeah by far like hands down and i will say i am also glad that appears they may be retiring the Paul Hollywood handshake for the future. I think oh, Paul Hollywood God. said as much in an in- interview because our previous uh, guest on the pod, friend of the pod, James Hansen um, of mm-hmm. Eater London, he has said this before on this pod and elsewhere. He's like, the Paul Hollywood supremacy has got to stop. And it does, yeah. It, it's true. This season, it's been like clearer than ever. They Anyway, I'm glad if it really is like the case that they will be phasing out the handshake. I'm really glad that's the case. I agree. I agree. And now we go back to the misery of regular life without Bake Off. <laughs> um, and we just True. wait for the next season. I will say the holiday special this year is with the um, It's a Sin cast, the Great no British. Way. Yeah. So we're yeah. very excited about that. So that is us for this week. Next week, we have a very, very special episode. It will be our succession episode so we'll only be talking about succession and we will be talking about it with the time tv critic judy berman so she will be joining us on the show to talk about how the season of succession is going so far if you in the meantime if you have been watching anything that you think we should check out let us know at criticism is dead at gmail.com or just at us or dm us at criticism is dead all one word on twitter and instagram for extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, please subscribe to criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with that sweet five stars. Tell a friend about us. You know, these things always spread through word of mouth, um, much like COVID. Please <laughs> see you. Uh, please take care. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Penn and Keskin Liu and Jenny Jijang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.